0: Hi everyone and welcome back to How to Save the Planet. It's me, Mona, your favourite climate campaigner. And well, the whole world has ground to a halt and our government is rightly prioritising its response to COVID-19. The coronavirus is affecting us all and reshaping 2020 in a way we never imagined. But what does this mean for issues that can't be postponed? This year, Glasgow was due to host the 26th UN Climate Change Talks, or COP, Last week, we heard that COP will be understandably postponed and we want to dig into this. What really happens at COP? Why is it so important and what should be done now? Today, we're joined by the wonderful Rachel Kennelly, our international climate campaigner here at Friends of the Earth. And back with me again to to co-present is Fran. Hey, how you doing? I'm great, thank you. I'm actually excited for this chat because I don't know much about COP in terms of kind of the nitty gritty. So I'm really great that Rachel is here with us. So Rachel, to begin, can you give us a short explanation of of the Climate Talks and why are they called COP?
1: Yeah, sure thing, hi. And uh, I've been tasked with trying to talk about the Climate Talks uh, without using uh, all the complicated language and all the acronyms that it is completely littered with. (laughs) Um, So this is gonna be a challenge for me. so yeah let's let's start with that that first one cop uh so it stands for conference of parties uh, and the parties are basically countries or nations uh, and they are the the countries that are party to the UN agreements and the UN kind of conventions around climate change so the conference of parties is basically uh where all these different countries all the countries in the world send delegations to these conferences, and they discuss climate change, and they discuss how they're going to what action they're going to take on climate change. Um, and at the moment, that's kind of really thinking about the Paris Agreement, which was an international climate agreement, uh, kind of that was kind of uh, created in 2015, uh, and how they're going to do details around that. Um, just to stop you there
2: for a minute, Rachel. So you were mentioning um, was it the UN Convention on Climate? Uh, can can you talk us through a bit about that?
1: So this is when the acronyms really start, right? So this is the uh, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, which is referred to as the UNF Triple C, um, which is one hell of an acronym. Um, and this is kind of the UN body and the convention uh, that all of the international climate agreements sit under. So the most recent one is the Paris Agreement. The agreements come under the convention, um, but then you also have different bits of the convention um, or different kind of agendas that sit under the convention that kind of deal with slightly different things. And you sometimes get weird arguments at the beginning of um, the climate talks each year, which we kind of call agenda fights. And they... (laughs) Yeah, I know, they sound thrilling, don't they? And this is literally countries arguing about which agenda certain issues will go on, because it has really big implications for how much profile those things have, how much time they get, uh, what sort of formality uh, the decisions that happen under those agendas get. So it's really big stuff about where these different decisions sit but also really tedious and really kind of like <laughs> academic.
0: Ooh, I can imagine. I always remember when Rachel comes back from these conferences that she talks about the funny things countries fought over. And my favourite story is
1: the fonts and font sizes. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> I, once, <laughs> I once watched a, a good 45-minute negotiation where... The, the facilitators were trying to get it back on track and every time they tried Brazil would just put their hand up and go the font's too small you really <laughs> need to change the font <laughs> on the document. Could, <laughs> like size nine is too small and then somebody you know the country would put their hand up again. size nine is too small but this is not the conversation we ought to be having and it just goes oh, on no. oh, it doesn't fill you with confidence does it if that's the sort of discussion going on it does need it does
0: lead nicely to my next question of, you know, do they achieve anything in these conferences?
1: Um and and would you say they're useful? Yeah, so they are um well, yeah, it's a good question, Mona. Um they are useful in the sense that they they are the only process we have where all countries get to come to the table and are treated equally. Right? That's very rare. In the world, uh, and the idea that you can have kind of a negotiator from the island of Vanuatu in the in the Pacific negotiating on an equal footing with the negotiators from the United States, right? That's incredible, and that's something that's really really exciting and something that we ought to really promote and treasure. However, they don't necessarily the process doesn't live up to everything that it ought to be achieving. Um, And there's a lot of reasons for this. It's not necessarily a problem with the way the process is set up, but governments don't really come into the talks and negotiate on a fair basis. So, you know, ideally, everybody would rock up to these conferences, they'd sit down for two weeks, and they would work together to try and kind of solve kind of reduce emissions to solve kind of stop climate change happening and to deal with the impacts of climate change that are already happening. Um, That's the ideal. But of course countries actually turn up with their own domestic agendas as well. So for example, some oil producing countries do not want to discuss reducing oil production because that would (laughs) that's that's what their economy is based on. I know, surprise. So they come and they try and kind of negotiate to look like they're doing a bit on climate change but they're not actually willing to kind of do what's necessary so you end up with this process that kind of replicates a lot of the power dynamics you see between countries across politics right you have big rich countries that are kind of most responsible for climate change and you have poorer more vulnerable countries that are kind of for suffer the impacts of climate change and they're trying to negotiate a deal between them. And unsurprisingly, that doesn't get very far when, you know, countries aren't prepared to move, really.
0: Um, how serious do you think governments take, um, you know, COPs? And, and and do you think there are varying levels, almost clusters of, of governments that are there um, some who take it very seriously or some who are just kind of want to appear to be
1: taking it seriously. And maybe that's just my cynicism. I, I think that's well-placed cynicism. Um Yeah, that, that's basically it. So there are some countries who take it very seriously because this is their one chance to negotiate on this equal footing. And what they're facing at home is kind of a life or death situation. Um So if you think about kind of low-lying island states in the pacific for example you're literally talking about the destruction of their their homes their capitals their you know their entire countries in some cases um people are already kind of losing having to flee their homes because of climate change and sea level rise people are losing their means of feeding themselves through kind of uh sea level rise making farmland too salty to grow stuff in um so it for Countries like that, or even countries that have um, are susceptible to hurricanes and storms, so you know Mozambique, the Philippines, these are countries where people are literally dying because of climate change. Um, so those countries take it very, very seriously. What you don't see is then the countries that aren't kind of on the immediate pointy end of climate change, and the countries that kind of have done most cause climate change they don't take it as seriously so um you've been to one of these talks have you rachel i've been to more of the talks than i want to admit to (laughs) 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 but in in what sort of capacity did
2: you go because it made it sound a little bit like it was more government talks but um were you there with friends of the earth
1: Yeah, so I um, go to the talks as part of the Friends of the Earth International Delegation, which is a delegation of people from uh, across the Friends of the Earth International Network. And the Friends of the Earth International Delegation goes to make sure that uh, voices from the Global South and from impacted groups are represented in the talks. Um, And that is because, as you said, it's a very government-heavy process. They're the people who do the actual negotiating but there is supposedly space for other voices in this process, uh, which makes sense because climate change isn't just an issue for government, right? The governments aren't the people feeling the direct impacts, it's other communities. Um, So alongside the governments, you also have uh, other, they're called constituencies, so other groups that take part. So I go as part of the environmental organisations group, makes sense. Um, so you have all these other involved groups, but they don't have a formal sort of voice in the talks. And so the talk, it's always, um, all these groups are always kind of struggling to try and get their voices heard and to try and make sure that the outcomes of the talks are fair for their, um, for their constituency, with the exception of the business group who they often don't struggle to make their voices heard.
2: <laughs> so how do you manage to get your voices heard then? If you're not part of the formal arrangement, do you, you know, do you attend meetings? Like, are you in a big conference hall? Um, yeah. What's the vibe? The vibe. Yeah.
1: What, <laughs> what's your day look like? Um, the, the vibe, oh, I'll start with, yeah, the atmosphere, um, because it's really surreal and it's really, um, it, it simultaneously is really inspiring but is also so disempowering and depressing at the same time Um, so it's inspiring because it's you know what other opportunity do you get to be in a place with people from literally every country in the world and you know you can meet people from the other side of the planet and you have the world's leading climate experts there and world leaders and you know it should that's quite inspiring that's quite special to have you know activists from all over the Um, world and indigenous people from like you know indigenous people from the arctic circle but also indigenous people from kind of uh latin america and having them all in one place sharing their experiences and kind of listening to them is incredible right so on one side inspiring on the other side devastatingly disempowering
0: (laughs) Um, (laughs) maybe (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> that would be ideal um because you do have this very like formalized process and it's only really the government voices that get heard and it's very stilted and it's very slow and you see these power relationships between kind of rich and poor countries playing out and it feels very disconnected from that goal of stopping the climate crisis um because sometimes they're arguing over font size
0: and often, Rachel, when when negotiations are happening, we see big protests happening roughly at the same time. Um, uh, with in Madrid last year, there was a, a very big kind of uh, protests, um, all calling for climate justice. And how much does that influence the negotiations?
1: Yeah. So so far, I've kind of we've mainly spoken about what happens inside that physical venue, right? But actually. The climate talks are this wider phenomenon where you get, you know, frequently hundreds of thousands of activists converging in one city around the climate talks. So you do, you see these huge climate marches. Yeah, like in Madrid last year, 500,000 people. It was incredible. Um, Yeah, I was in Paris. Yeah, the Paris marches, there was a whole week. Well, there weren't the marches in Paris because it was... Uh, there was huge police security to the shootings. When was the Paris uh, meeting? So the Paris meeting was December 2015. So it was wow. a few weeks after um, the shootings that took place in Paris. And so all the kind of the plans for activists to get together and do big marches had to be completely shut down because yeah. um, of the heightened security. But what happened was lots of the activists still came to Paris and they did incredible actions within these new security um, conditions. So you weren't allowed to gather with more than 10 people, um, but they had tens of thousands of activists in Paris. So they they all went in small groups um, with their mobile phones to different locations in Paris and kind of uh, checked in or dropped pins in a map. And as all these thousands of little dots appeared over this map of Paris, it spelt out climate justice and peace across Paris. And it was beautiful. Um, So it was, yeah, these mobilisations and these moments for activists to connect around the talks are really what's kind of, Essential and really important about the climate talks. Yeah,
0: no, you're right. When I was in Paris and I took part in that geo uh, kind of t- kind of spelling out, um, and it was. It was that surreal thing of being like, are we going, are we not going? And then when you went then it was just like so many people um, from different groups. And we were a delegation of just, um, you know, Muslim activists. It felt, it, yeah, that for me felt like where the inspiration sat. And obviously I wasn't indoors, um, but yeah, I, could, I if, if it feels incredibly inspiring. And I think... So it's those movements that we hope put the pressure on those who are making the decisions to push for more than just the the, mediocre kind of goalposts that they were aiming for.
2: You guys have um, mentioned Paris a couple of times. Is it like a particularly important talk that
1: year? So yeah so the Paris talks were December 2015 and that's where we got kind of the Paris agreement um which is the the current international climate agreement um and it was kind of heralded as this um real it was it was when it was happening it was heralded as this kind of really historic moment um in in kind of how we tackle climate change because basically all the countries in the world signed up to it, which is rare and has not happened before with a climate agreement. Um, And, you know, obviously that has changed with uh, the US uh, planning to pull out of the Paris Agreement. Um, But if they do, they will literally be the only country in the world who's not signed up to it.
2: Is there a quick way of trying to explain what it is that they agreed to?
1: I can give it a go. Um, go on, go on. It won't cover <laughs> all of the detail because there's there's a yeah there is a lot in there and some of it is still being worked out. Okay, it was it was signed in kind of yeah around 2015, but they're actually still working out some of the detail, and that's what is happening in the climate talks um, uh, at the moment, okay. particularly last year in Madrid. Um, but basically, the Paris Agreement says that we need to keep global temperature rise below two degrees. And that actually we ought to be aiming for 1.5 degrees, which is what we would say. That's 1.5 degrees is kind of the level, the temperature rise at which it might still be safe for the vast majority of people in the world. And then it lays out some ways in which countries can, should do that, right? And so what it actually says is that countries will submit pledges every few years. That say what climate action they're going to do. Then the Paris Agreement um, kind of assesses how they're doing against that pledge over the coming years. It, and this is one of the problems with the Paris Agreement, right? Is that it's voluntary? They don't have to actually meet the pledge, and they don't actually have to make sure that pledge, all those pledges together, add up to keeping temperatures below two degrees. So that's it, it's it's basically me saying uh i promise i fully intend i promise i'm definitely going to the gym there's nothing in, my be- in nothing in my behavior to say to indicate that i am going to go to the gym uh and there's nothing to make me do that i just have to keep every five years saying no i'm definitely going to the gym monday time. i promise monday Soon. i'll be there <laughs> <laughs>
0: um
1: and i have to i have to report back i have to say actually, no, I didn't go to the gym, <laughs> or I walked towards the gym, but I didn't go into the gym. So you have to you have to report on whether you've met your pledge or not. But that's the only legally binding bit, not actually right. whether you do it, just reporting on it. But the one kind of like useful tool in the Paris Agreement is this, um, it's called like a ratchet mechanism. And so all these countries have made these pledges, and but they don't If you add them all up, if every country did their entire pledge and you added all that effort up, it wouldn't keep temperature below two degrees or 1.5 degrees. So there's this ratchet mechanism, which is every five years, countries have to review and resubmit their pledge. And the idea is that they would obviously make it stronger. Technically, they could make it weaker, which would be awkward. Um, But they're, they're meant to increase their pledge every five years. And that's one of the things that was meant to be happening this year, is that we would get this first increasing this first ratcheting up of countries' pledges.
2: Ah, right. Okay. So that's why we were looking forward so much to COP26 in Glasgow.
1: Exactly. Because this is when we could shrink that gap between what countries were saying they were going to do and this two-degree target. And Rachel,
0: what else were we were hoping to achieve or at least progress in COP26?
1: So what we were hoping for, or what we knew was coming, was All the countries would resubmit these climate pledges, and so we would get an idea of actually whether we were closer to hitting that two degree or one point five degree target. That's that was the main thing that was happening. So currently, currently every country has one of these pledges, and it's all recorded in I don't know the big Paris Agreement book of promise, don't know, (laughs) but it's recorded somewhere. Um, And all these pledges are kind of recorded and. Then, and if you add them all up, so if you assume that all countries did everything they promised to do, that still takes us to well over three degrees of global warming. So at the moment, those pledges are nowhere near where they need to be. So 2020 and the climate, this 26th climate talks, COP26, was meant to be the deadline by when all these countries put their new pledges in, they all get recorded in the big book, and then um, we can add them all up and see if they did those pledges, whether we would be below that two degree limit.
2: So what happens now if that was the deadline for them to submit pledges? Surely it doesn't need a climate talk for them all to submit pledges. Can that still not happen?
1: Yeah, so countries can still submit them um, and in fact should do. Um, the Actually, the first deadline for by when they were meant to submit them was actually earlier this year and only three countries hit that deadline. Wow. Wow. Um, And yeah, they are (laughs) punctual countries. Um, Uh, Wow. Everybody's very on time and coping with that. It makes me feel quite good about myself, though. Like, I miss deadlines sometimes, but I've not missed a UN deadline yet.
0: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, there are levels. There are levels.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they can still submit this year and in fact should do. And hopefully the UK, as the kind of the hosts of the COPs, the COP this year, will encourage countries to do that um, because it's, you know, it's an important part of the process, this ratchet mechanism. There is an argument, obviously, that because of coronavirus, countries and governments will not have a lot of spare capacity to be thinking about this. Hopefully they've already done a lot of the work already because they've had, you know, they've had five years. Um But, you know, there is there is an argument for a bit more flexibility around that so that countries can take the time they need to come up with a really good pledge. Um, But what's important there is the role of the UK as the Climate Talks hosts, setting that ambition really high, setting expectations that countries do increase their pledges. Rachel, I think this. All shows the importance of COP26,
0: and now it's been delayed, um, uh, rightly so, um, because of the coronavirus. Do we have any sense of um, the new timelines and when COP26 will actually happen now?
1: Um, well, I've got some rumours. That's almost like information, the- information the- isn't the- rumors, it? That- yeah, that- <laughs> <laughs> but basically the the UK and the UN have said it will be in 2021 so next year um the rumor is that it will be in kind of spring late spring 2021 so maybe around may which you know the weather will be better so that's good um but yeah basically we don't know um the UN and the UK will consult with other countries um and it does you know there's lots of things to consider. We don't actually know how long the global pandemic is going to going to last. Different countries will kind of peak at different points um so it might be even that if the u k might be fine by November, but an African country where that hasn't really started developing the virus to a high level yet might not be because they might be in the middle of their peak. So there's a lot of things to consider um, and giving countries enough time to deal with coronavirus is obviously the priority and then come back with really good proposals for the climate talks. And we do have, like, if you look at history, there is, uh, there's an example of when this didn't work, right? So in, in 2009, The climate talks were in Copenhagen and obviously that was just as the financial crash was happening and as kind of countries were really distracted dealing with that. And that was a terrible climate talks um, and really set the process back. So it's a big risk going or like forcing the climate talks to happen during kind of like a global crisis because people just don't have the capacity to work on it properly. Rachel,
0: um, you speak about, I guess, the importance of COP26 and and the importance of these conferences for pushing for the important kind of work of governments across the world um, to limit global temperatures. What can we do now when we're in this, I guess, limbo stage
1: um, to fight for climate justice? It's a great question. I think lots of people are struggling with that. Um, for me, it's about... Obviously what we need to prioritize right now is coronavirus and making sure we're you know saving as many lives as possible globally that's obviously the priority but what people it but that just because we have the coronavirus doesn't mean the climate crisis has gone away right and it doesn't mean we can delay action on the climate crisis um so we still need to be considering that and how we recover from you know, the pandemic, there are going to be decisions made about where money goes, where economic stimulus is go, where, you know, what we what we choose to do as part of this recovery from coronavirus. And that really needs to be also a solution to climate change and kind of other environmental problems like nature loss and things like that. So for me, it's it's thinking about as we start kind of coming out of the crisis and we think about how we're going to recover from that, making sure that that recovery is sustainable and it's fair and it really puts people uh, and environment first. Thank you
0: so much, Rachel. That was really, really insightful. And I've even learned some... Some new things about the process um, and, and the importance of COP 26. So, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Rachel. Thank you for Fab having with me. With that, um, I'll let you go. Take care, guys. Bye. Take care. Bye. See you soon. Bye. It was really lovely to speak to Rachel and Fran about the COPs um, and how important they are in, in the fight to protect people and planet. Well, I guess it's, of course, important that right now all attention is on the coronavirus and protecting frontline workers and those most vulnerables. But... As we hopefully get through it and, and start thinking about life after it, we need to make sure, as Rachel said, that it's one again centered on the most vulnerable and that climate justice and the world that we strive to build is one that's sustainable and works for all. So, with that, I say take care of yourselves, each other, and the planet. And we hope to see you soon.